HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com, bringing you the freshest radio in Brooklyn since 2009. Hear directly from chefs to farmers, artists to architects, authors to brewers, and everyone in between. Check out all of our shows on our website or by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes store. The following is a message from NOFA and Y. Do you dig local food? Love organic farmers? Do you crave to be part of a growing movement of consumers concerned with the state of our nation's food system? Then sign up today to take the NOFA and Wise Locavore Challenge this September. Join 5,000 other New York locavores that are hungry, active, and ready to change our food system. Learn more at www.nylocavorechallenge.com. Hi there, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm Linda Palaccio, your host on this half-hour journey through culinary history. And this is one of my favorite times of year. It's the harvest time, the long-awaited fresh produce that we so carefully attended through the summer. It's also sort of an ironic time in the sense that we waited and waited and watered and weeded and staked and, and pruned our tomato plants, and then finally, the long-awaited treat arrives, that vine-ripened, sweet, juicy globe of fruit off the vine, and nothing quite tastes the same, as we all know. Then, after collecting all the tomatoes one weekend, and the next weekend, and the following weekend... I'm just about at the end of my tomato harvest from my little plot of land upstate, and it's the irony comes to like, oh my goodness, what am I going to do with all of these tomatoes? I can't process them fast enough. I can't eat them fast enough. They're going to rot. And of course, then they all go into the sauce pot, and I process them in a bottle, and in the, so in the middle of winter, I can open that jar of sunshine and throw it in a bowl or put it over pasta. And the irony, again, comes in that for the other 10 months of the year, I'm pining away for a fresh tomato. And 
that is the topic of today's conversation because we all pine away for the taste of that fresh tomato when we try, try, try to go to the supermarket and choose something that we think will resemble the flavors we know from summertime. And it just isn't there. My guest today is Barry Estabrook. And Barry is an author and an investigative journalist. He was formerly a contributing editor at the late Gourmet Magazine and now serves on the advisory board of Gastronomica, the Journal of Food and Culture. He writes for the New York Times and the Washington Post and several websites. His own blog, in fact, Politics of the Plate, received the James Beard Award for the best blog of the year. His recent book is Tomato Land, How Modern Industrial Agriculture Destroyed Our Most Alluring Fruit. Welcome, Barry. Hi. You say it, a modern industrial agriculture destroyed our fruit. It's, I mean, I, I remember even as a kid going to the supermarket and seeing those cellophane little boxes with three perfect little tomatoes in the, in the cardboard tray covered in cellophane, being so excited, but they were just red, and that was about all there was that resembled a tomato. Exactly. I mean, they, they're food porn in, in the purest sense of the word. They, they, they look like a tomato. They look better than a garden tomato. Um, but that's where it stops. It's all in the appearance. And, and they and taste, it, either, taste either like styrofoam or wet clay. <laughs> exactly. The best you can say is they taste like nothing. <laughs> nothing. That's right. That's right. Well, what um, – and, and people have tried to supply – I mean, we, we crave this fruit, so people are trying, obviously, to supply it when it's really not the season for tomatoes. How did you – what made you look into this? Well, it, it start- and what did you look into? <laughs> well, it started out um, several years ago. I was driving down I-75 in southwestern Florida and came up behind uh, this, this truck. It looked like a gravel truck, an open-top, big, long yeah, truck, yeah. Um, except it was piled high with green balls. And I, I first thought they were Granny Smith apples until I remembered, well, apples don't grow in Florida. <laughs> so I, I came up behind it and realized it was... It was loaded with perfectly green tomatoes. There wasn't a hint of pink or, or, or red anywhere on this truck. And I was sort of going, what on earth? When the truck entered a construction area, hit a bump, and three or four of these things flew off the truck. And they, they almost went through my windshield, but I, they didn't. Instead, they hit the pavement, bounced a couple of times, and rolled into the shoulder. Good uh, thing it didn't hit your windshield. Yes. You'd think a tomato would smash, you know, immediately, right? right? You if you it, squeeze it too hard. These things didn't even, they didn't crack. They oh. looked to me perfectly intact. So I thought, thought back to my garden tomatoes. I, I grow a lot of brandy wines. Mm. And I consider myself very fortunate if I, if I collect one or two to get them the 25 yards to the kitchen counter without them cracking. <laughs> Before they explode, <laughs> right. right. <laughs> and I thought, what have they done to this marvelous, tender fruit, this, this sig- sign of summer, um, in, in order to make it strong enough that it, that it can hit an interstate highway at 60 miles an hour, none the worse for the wear? Um, and I, I, started, I started looking at, at in, industrial tomatoes strictly from a, a point of view of, uh, of aesthetics, of taste. Um, and then as I got further into the story, I, I found out other things. Uh, you that, uncovered some pretty nasty uh, truths, actually. I guess I have to say truths because they, you know, they weren't rumor. It was truth. Uh, this book, I have to say, is, is like a novel of industrial espionage and intrigue. And, and uh, it has all the elements of, you know, of, of one of those types of novels. But unfortunately, it's, 
it's a true look at well, much like um, fast food nation or you know some of those other what is it uh, the the food ink explorations into meat. I mean this this was not a, a pleasant look. And you, what, tell me tell me a little bit about first of all about growing tomatoes in Florida was what one of the first things you you discovered, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, what I discovered was that if you if you're looking for a poster child for everything that's wrong with modern industrial scale factory farming if you're looking for one one poster child for that um you can't go much for better than a, than a, a florida tomato in the winter it you know you we, we we food people always spout off these you know these these things they almost they're almost like platitudes they're almost like a mantra you know local seasonal sustainable right. but you know they do mean something and when you strip them all away you end up with one of these hard green tasteless orbs Hmm. Um, one of the early things I found out was that you'd have to be a fool to grow tomatoes commercial commercial quantities of tomatoes in a place like Florida it sounds counterintuitive but the fact is that Florida is a very very humid area and tomatoes hate humidity Hmm. Everything that, that would destroy a tomato plant loves humidity. All those things you don't want to grow will grow. <laughs> the, funguses, <laughs> the funguses, the molds, right. the, the bacteria, right. you name it, the insects. Um, I mean, the fl- floor, um, tomatoes' wild ancestors are basically desert plants. It's, mm-hmm. it's native to the western deserts of South America, and those are some of the driest places on Earth. They're like little, ti- the, the origins were little tiny berries, almost like little... Little small berries on on yeah, the vines. Yeah, the, they're yeah. they're about the size of a large pea. You can still go down to parts of uh, Peru and northern and southern Ecuador and um, and find them. Mm. Um, but anyway, um, so in order to get a crop in Florida, they have to they have to treat it with almost a constant wash of pesticides, herbicides, and fungicides. Well, first of all, they're grown in sand. You said. Oh yeah. Um, uh, Exactly. Most Florida tomatoes are growing in sand. It's not They're, sandy soil or sandy loam. It's, it's just sand? It's like Daytona Beach, the stuff you wiggle your toes in, and it's it's about as nutritious. I was going to uh, say, there are no nutrients in sand. That's, that's a, exactly. <laughs> they they have to put, in, in usually in the form of artificial fertilizer, they have to put into a, a, below a row of tomatoes everything that those tomatoes will need to feed on for the season before they plant them. Hmm. By the end of the season... Ideally, there's no more nutrients left in the soil again, or the sand, because the tomatoes have, have used them all up. But it's, it may as well be hydroponic. They have to put everything in, in. Mm-hmm. that the tomato's ever going to have. If you now, try- are any of those things harmful to the consumer? Well... The, the, some of the pesticides they have to use. Yeah, the pesticides and fungicides. Yeah, aside, <laughs> I mean, with the nutrients, some of the things they they load the soil with. I'm wondering about that. Of course, and antibiotics. Don't they put some? Well, no, they well they they do uh, again. One of the one of the um, one of the pesticides they use is is uh, is a, not- a notorious poison, mm-hmm. um, methyl bromide. It's it's banned, in fact, but tomatoes have a uh, an exemption, um, and it kills. It literally kills every living thing in the soil. So okay, so now we have lousy growing conditions. A lot of artificial stuff being used to to protect and feed these tomatoes. What about the labor practices? Well, they're horrific. Um, on on one side, um, you've got um, well. This is this is a quote from the the U.S. Attorney of the Southern District of Florida. He said, "This 
meaning southwestern mm-hmm. Florida, is ground zero for modern-day slavery. Slavery. This guy has uh, become, an, uh, you know, unfortunately has become a world-renowned expert in prosecuting slavery cases. He's, you know, his, his cases have resulted in 1,200 people being freed over the last 10 or 15 years. And uh, these are, I mean, you're, you're talking about really horrific Slavery conditions, chains, and, well, well, and yeah, how, how, selling. Let me let me run yeah run yeah. by a few a few a shopping list. You know, people being bought and sold and bargained over, um, people being shackled in chains at night to prevent them from escaping, people being beaten for not working hard enough, or if they don't feel like working, or even if they're too sick to work, um, and people being literally beaten to the point where they're unrecognizable and have to be hospitalized if they're caught trying to escape. And getting no pay. Now that sounds a lot like eighteen fifty. And be exactly, and then being forced to pay an exorbitant price for a hovel in which they pack in, you know, right. And it's all, it's, people, it's right? often a phony price. I mean, yeah. they, they, oh, yeah. that's how they keep them enslaved. They say, well, your rent is so much per month, and you can't you pay have no it money off. left to right. leave. Right. Yeah. Right. yeah. It's it's the old owing your body in this case to the factory store. Well, you went to one specific area of Florida. Um, to, to look at some of these conditions, and which became then rather, uh, well, famous, if you will. Um, is it the Imokali? Imokali, like, Imokali. Bro- like broccoli. Broccoli, Imokali. And the Imokali workers, I mean, there were, since the, I was, I was shocked to find out since the 1990s, there were nine major cases of slavery. In right. that area alone. In that area, in, in, in mostly in, in that area, yes. Um, And uh, those are only the tip of a really ugly iceberg, too, because prosecutors, it's very, very difficult to bring a slavery case. You have to have a a witness. Um, And Other slaves are not witnesses. Well, uh, well, in most cases, if a slave gets free, the first thing they do is they hightail it. They're not going to stick around. So it's very difficult to to prosecute them. Right. Well, we're going to talk more about this in just a few minutes. We're going to take a short break, and hopefully there's a brighter side to this horrible tale. I mean, you have plenty you could talk about with you in any direction. I mean, you know. <laughs> okay. Okay. 
We are back. We're talking today. I'm talking today with Barry Estabrook, the author of Tomato Land, how modern industrial agriculture destroyed our most alluring fruit. And, you know, Barry, we're talking about these um, horrific labor conditions and, and um, artificial, if you, artificial methods of growing what we so prize and that juicy tomato. Um, what, certain, do they, are these tomatoes, I didn't ask you about that, were these tomatoes, they're picked green, they're not picked ripe, they don't let them ripen on the vine, do they? They're picked at a stage that they like to call mature green. Mature green. Okay. Um, and in theory, if, if, you, if a mature green is allowed to, to turn orange or red, um, it will deliver some favor, mm-hmm. flavor. However, there's no way, short of cutting a tomato open, that you can tell whether it's a mature green or just simply immature and green. And so a lot of tomatoes get picked that are simply never going to deliver any taste. They're taken, they're picked, they're loaded onto these big trucks, and they're hauled to a, a packing facility where they're put into cardboard crates. Those are put on pallets, and they're wheeled into warehouses where they close the door and expose the tomatoes, the green tomatoes, to ethylene gas. Mm-hmm. Now, ethylene gas is a, is a gas that the plant will produce naturally when it wants to tell the world that its fruits are ripe. Um, and the fruits don't know that, though, so if they get exposed to ethylene gas artificially, they'll obligingly turn the right color. They'll, but that doesn't make them right. The flavor won't develop, right. but the, the color fla- will the change. The color will change, yes. <laughs> right. they, they do. Oh, um, well, it's interesting because, I mean, anyone who's ever grown a tomato or, or gone to the, the, um, the farmer's market knows that the greener they are, the harder they are. And uh, certainly you can see the benefits for those who are picking and packing to get them while they're green, right? Well, it's, it's a wonderful system for the people that, that grow them and pack them and ship them and for the giant corporations and supermarket chains that, that use them. The only pe- person left out of that whole equation is the person who eats it. That's right. It's, it's no good for them, but, right. but everybody else in the line... You know, likes these hard. Well, now you stated that many of the ones that that accidentally do, accidentally turn ripe on the vine, that those get tossed into the can. I mean, do they can those? Do those go to a canning industry? Or? No, no. Canning industry and fresh tomato industries may as well be as apples and oranges. They're so totally these different. are slicing tomatoes. Slicing tomatoes, right. yes. And we know there is a big organization that controls those out of Florida, right? Well, the, all um, <clears throat> there's a group called the Florida Tomato Committee. Um, which controls, well, it exercises almost Orwellian controls out of ev- uh, over every aspect of how tomatoes should look um, and be packed if they're going to be exported from Florida during the winter months. So they control how it looks and what the shape is and the and the color. But they don't say anything about taste. Oh no, taste is not a factor. <laughs> it's it's strictly appearance, strictly what you know. You're, like you said, taste, color, whether there's cracks in it, the depth of the little stem scar, the the place where the tomato yes, was attached yeah. to the stem, that sort of thing they control. Taste is not a consideration. Well, to me, the uglier a tomato, my feeling is, the better it might taste because I know then that it's a naturally grown. Ripe, vine-ripened tomato. That, that's a good little secret. In fact, if you see a, a display at a farmer's market that looks too 
cosmetically perfect, you might want to raise your eyebrows. Too good to be true. It's too good to be true. <laughs> Something's in, yeah, because you're right. Naturally, a, a few dozen tomatoes will have some that are a little lumpy and, and maybe get a scar here or there on them. Well, I mean, taste is... It, it, is subjective in terms of, of the Florida tomato growers, and this is anything that can, they, they have control over anything that's grown and exported from Florida, right, these right. committees. Right. Um, and this is, not, this is nothing new. I mean, you, you quoted an article that was in The New Yorker by uh, Thomas Whiteside from 1977 complaining about the tasteless winter tomatoes. I mean, so this has been going on for a long time. Certainly has. I mean, it's that that article from the seventies. You could read it aloud today, and you'd be thinking you were talking about a modern tomato. It, ha- it hasn't changed. Um, as long as these mature green, this mature green system, which they use, or we could call it gas green, if you're a little less, uh, made a little more cynical, but yeah. that system is what produces these these uh, these fruits. Uh, back to the labor. Issues. I mean, I know there were some horrible things that were happening to the people who worked in the fields who were exposed to these deadly pesticides. What has changed in that, if anything? Well, there's actually been a sea change in the last year. Um, it's, it's an amazing story. There, there's this group called the Coalition of Immokalee Workers. We talked about Immokalee earlier. It's a big uh, farm worker town in so the CIW that you right refer the to coalition it. of Immokalee workers and it started out in the early nineties and it was just basically a, a, a few dozen workers who'd meet occasionally in a church basement to to just talk about how how they their frustrations um, and a, you know and then it started to do things like five or ten of them would go p- pay a visit on a a crew boss who maybe hadn't paid an employee for a week or so and and sort of you know, suggest that they that he ought to do the right thing, but it it evolved from that to become one of the most sophisticated and savvy human rights labor rights organizations in the country. Um, they finally decided um, about ten years ago that the problem was the big corporations that buy most of the tomatoes. The big supermarket chains. Supermarket chains, fast food chains. Taco Bell. Taco Bell. McDonald's. And and the problem was that these corporations were putting ever heavier downward pressure on the prices. And so the farmers, um, who are no saints, but could rightfully say, we can't pay you more. We Mm -hmm. can't. So they decided, the first company they decided to go after was Taco Bell. Um, Mm -hmm. And it took them four years of demonstrations, um, sit-ins. Um, there was a time when they went on hunger strikes. Now, is this where the Coalition for Fair Food came out it's, of? It was the, it's called the Campaign for Fair Food, mm-hmm. right? And that was the start campaign of Campaign for Fair Food. It right. was aimed at Taco Bell. Remember at that time, Taco Bell had that annoying little talking chihuahua yes. with a Mexican accent, yes. which, which was insulting to these people. Um, so they went after him. And after four years... Um, Taco Bell finally said uncle um, and agreed to this fair food agreement. Um, and then they, so then they went on to McDonald's and did the same thing. It only took two years that time. And then they moved on down the line to all the fast food chains. Um, the food service industry, um, which is, are the organizations that sell food to universities and mm-hmm. corporations and museums, what you know, Huge catering um, service, Aramark and the huge catering Aramark services. and those yeah, guys, yeah. they came aboard because one of them, Bon Appetit Management, um, voluntarily 
saw that this wasn't right and came aboard. And once it had, it brought all them. So, you know, here they had they had these all these people who were willing to take part in the fair food program, which which famously um, the main component, one of the main components was that it, they would pay a penny more per pound for their tomatoes. It doesn't sound like much. Doesn't sound much to you or I, but that's the difference between making forty or fifty dollars on a good day mm. and making eighty dollars to a tomato picker. That, so that and, adds up. But those buckets well, that, of tomatoes that the pickers fill, those weigh what, like th- around thirty pounds? Yeah, they, that they get paid. They were getting paid a dollar, a penny and a half a pound, hmm. fifty cents, sixty cents for one of those full thirty-five pound buckets. Hmm. Um, and now, you know, if you get paid two and a half cents a pound, it really does add up. It's a difference between not being able to feed your family in a, a crummy, but at least livable wage. Right, right. So that was fine, but there was no way to get the money to the workers because the tomato growers. They were keeping the... Their, through this Florida Tomato Growers Exchange, refused to take part. So even though Taco Bell was willing to say... I'll pay an extra penny a pound directly to the workers and McDonald's and all these other food corporations. You couldn't get it to the workers because the the growers, even though it wasn't going to cost them anything, refused. Well, you have a piece in um, this month's, this quarter's uh, Gastronomica that kind of gives a, the... It's a nice addendum to the book because it's it's a, it's a little bit of a, a cheerful story. Well, it's a, a, very much it's, a, a it's an amazing story because, like I say, the the growers were refusing and digging in. They went through congressional, Senate hearings, um, all sorts of pressure. The governor, Charlie Chris, even you know put pressure on them. And then finally, last November, they agreed. It was astounding. It was. They agreed to this, not only give the extra penny a pound, but to a whole series of fair food initiatives. Um, some of them don't sound too astounding. You know, things like punch clocks are now um, in the fields. Huh, well, a, a, that would make a, a big difference. There's yeah. a new invention for you. Or how, about, <laughs> or, or how about putting up a little tent so that they can have some shade uh, to have lunch? Uh, yeah. But there's some really serious things, too, like a proper grievance procedure and um, health health education for the workers they have uh, each crew now has a couple of workers who are trained in, in basic you know health things such as pesticide exposure sprains so it's it's amazing and the tomato growers agreed um to come aboard and these were people who wouldn't speak to the tomato growers two months earlier mm-hmm. um i i went down there in april um and got in the car with a few members of the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, and we drove to this big packing plant, Pacific Tomatoes Packing Plant. Last time the Coalition of Immokalee Workers had come there, they'd been greeted by armed policemen and run off the property. This time they were greeted by smiles and handshakes and, and drove right in. And, and Total uh, sea change. Total sea change. And the Coalition, I mean, these are just one step away from the field themselves, really. They're all farm workers mm-hmm. at one point, stood in front of a group of 50 new guys. A new crew had come in and basically spent an hour or more outlining all of their rights under this new this new program. You know, how much they were expected to pick. Terrific. Um, how, to gr- how to complain. And the most amazing thing was after the coalition was done, the human rights manager for this big corporation stood up. And I didn't know what he was going to say. And he, he stood in front of the room, and 
He basically said, we as a company have grown tired of all these abuses. We don't want them anymore. We don't want them in our fields. And then he basically went on and said, if you see something, say, say something. something. Hmm. If, you, if, you, if you can't, if you, you don't want to come to me, he passed out his business card to every, every member. He said, if you don't want to call me, um, tell your crew boss. If you don't feel comfortable telling your crew boss, call the coalition of Immokalee workers. Hmm. If you don't feel comfortable talking to them, just tell the guy next to you. I don't care. But if you see something wrong, say something. Amazing. So they're really trying to clean up their act. That's really, well, it's really happening. And it's going to go into full effect this fall. They plant tomatoes in, you know, tomato working starts in October, November in, in that part of Florida. And, hmm. and the whole the whole industry will be in part of this new arrangement. There, there is one unfortunate <laughs> side that to that story. And? Well, as I told, we said, we have all the fast food chains aboard, all the f- food service companies aboard. Who has not signed? Who has not signed? Not a single, with the exception of Whole Foods markets, not a single grocery store chain in the country has agreed, which means that half the tomatoes are still picked under the old system because gross supermarkets account right. for about half. So until they come aboard, it's as if, the coalition has built this this pipeline, but the pipeline isn't full. Hmm. You know they can't fill it. It's up to the supermarket chains to to take part in this. That's which, right. You know now that the growers have agreed, there's there's really no argument. Well, let's hope that that can can come about and change, and 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 let's also hope that maybe the taste can change. And and that brings me to an, another part of your research that you did, and that was on actual tasting of the tomatoes um and and you tasted a lot of tomatoes because there are these breeders i mean certainly we know you you just spoke about growing a brandy wine now brandy wines aren't easy to grow anyone who's tried to grow an heirloom variety of tomato knows that they take a lot of patience and and you have a lot of failures but yeah and then you get that ugly looking fruit and it and as you say you're lucky to put it on your table before it cracks and explodes and the juice just drains out all over the place so breeders have taken care of some of these problems that, for better or for worse, and, and you hate to bring in names like Monsanto and DuPont and you know, some of those people, but I mean, there are some, some hybrid tomatoes that are helping deliver them to the market, people who can't grow their own, obviously. Well, there's been some interesting work. It's not so much the Monsantos. They, they're, they're kind of out of the tomato business um, or those big agri-business companies, but mm-hmm. there's been some really interesting work done by uh, plant breeders and, and biologists at the uh, University, University of Florida. Um, and essentially, from the, st- the starting point is there is no intrinsic reason why a tomato tough enough to, to withstand industrial agriculture should not have any taste. Mm. The reason they don't have taste is no one's bred for taste for 50 or 60 years. There's only been one re- thing they've bred for, and that is yield. As one farmer said to me, I don't get paid for taste. I get paid, paid by, by the by pound. The pound. Yeah. And if, if that's all they've been breeding for, and that's all that's mattered, um, taste has simply gotten lost in commercial tomatoes, because it's, it's hard to deal breed for taste it's very for it's particularly in tomatoes it's very very difficult complex and time consuming and expensive it takes 10 15 years to get a new tomato variety wow but there are a couple of researchers who are 
Um, one group is, is basically going one molecule at a time, uh, trying to breed using, using not, not uh, genetic modification, but old-style crossbreeding, mm-hmm. hybridization techniques, to try to breed the taste molecules, chemicals that produce the, the tasty molecules, you know, the molecules that give it taste, back into these hard tomatoes. And, you know, they're making progress. It'll probably be in five or ten years you'll be able to go, if you want to, in the dead of winter, and purchase a tomato um, that tastes like something. It's not going to taste like a, a garden-grown tomato, but it'll taste like something. Something. I mean, we there. You can see a, a little shift in some of the tomatoes that come in the winter. You know, try a few, but it's not not too uh, promising yet. As long as we can feel better about the labor practices, and, and then maybe try those and buy those tomatoes. I mean, it's. It's a it's a, a real conundrum whether to you know you don't want to stop buying them because you want to keep these people in business you want to give them jobs and but then you don't want to buy something that doesn't taste good and well it it I mean to me it's it comes down to you know buy locally if you can't grow your right. own buy locally I mean I I part of this book I visited Tim Stark who who's a farmer that supplies the uh, green market in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly Union Square, but he, he does to go to a couple of others, and and along with a lot of the major re- uh, famous restaurants, tomatoes are his thing. Well, I went to visit his farm in Pennsylvania, and and he had ten or fifteen employees there, all of them making more, you know, between ten and fifteen dollars an hour, all of them housed in he 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 provides housing for them in perfectly nice houses, um, and you think that well, you know. Ten years ago, he was there was no, you know, he, his business didn't exist, and now he's got those fifteen employees because people have supported that type of agriculture. That's right, and you can do a lot by that. And I think that that's, you know, that's a way you can get a tomato that tastes good, that hasn't been laced with chemicals, and that that has been harvested by people who are making a decent living. That's you know? right. Well, and then hydroponic. I mean, there are hydroponic and greenhouse tomatoes that are grown locally that still aren't, still don't taste like the real thing, but they're they're a little bit better than they used to be. Yeah, I I, I, I didn't dwell on that a lot, but I, I did spend some time with a, with a hydroponic grower who, who let me in on the secret, is that because hydroponics, you have to, you know, the, the plants are growing in a sterile medium, so you have to feed them everything. Um, artificially pump in the nutrients pump right. in the nutrients those nutrients cost money mm. and there is a tremendous temptation to you know only give them enough nutrients for the the tomatoes to to grow whatever's cost efficient huh? right and the fact is to add taste you know you have to pay more money you have to put in give them more nutrients so there is a um, hydroponic growers are there's a terrible temptation for them to to, to not to do that. So that's why you end up with these expensive, you know, but tasteless. Yeah, and, you know, years ago, it used to be a little thing you called weight. <laughs> and it used to be such a treat in the summertime to get that first vine-ripened tomato, slice it up, and that was a summertime meal. A BLT or, you know, a, a nice, you know, tomato on a, on a, on a hamburger from on the grill. If it's not tomato season, just wait. Well, that's, it will be. That is, that, I mean, because the other alternative is what you're getting in the winter is not a tomato. Right. It looks like a tomato. 
we, you know, it has no taste, and that's an, on a good day. <laughs> you know, if it doesn't taste like cardboard or styrofoam, it just has no taste. It's not a tomato. It just looks like a tomato. It's yeah. something orange in your salad. It's not. So, yeah, I mean, my, my philosophy is to make an embarrassing tomato hog out of myself this time of right. year. Right, and exactly. And I'm not kidding. There are days when I have fried tomatoes for breakfast, a tomato sandwich for lunch, and tomato salad for dinner. Um, and then, just like you were saying earlier, there comes a time when the garden just gets overrun, or the farmer's market, if, yeah. you, if you don't have a garden. Right. And you can buy or bring home a, a big bunch of tomatoes and throw them in a pot, along with a little bit of little onion, a little garlic. And there and, you go. And then we, I, I freeze. I don't jar, but oh. I freeze them in individual servings. And all winter long, you've got an, you a know, fresh flavor that right. can be on the table on top of some pasta in, in 20 minutes. Well, Barry, it's been enlightening, to say the least. And I say to my listeners, to everything, there is a season. <laughs> and give it a chance, right? Um, and I urge you, if, you, if anyone is interested in, um, in the story of tomatoes and, and want to get fired up about something, this book will definitely fire you up. It's called Tomato Land by Barry Estabrook. And thank you so much for sharing all your research with us. It's been Again, my pleasure. I'm Linda Palaccio, and you've been listening to A Taste of the Past. Every spring at the end of kidding season, goat dairies across the country are faced with the question of what to do with their male bucklings. Because on a dairy farm, there's no role for a male. Often the most economical thing for these farmers to do is to call the animals at birth or ship them off to the commodity market. Heritage Foods USA is embarking on a new project, No Goat Left Behind, looking to step in and fill this niche by creating a marketplace for these male bucklings. Visit us at www.heritagefoodsusa.com to learn more and to reserve your goat this coming October. 